Hello, wise ones. It's Kimmy here. Today, we are re-airing my conversation with Alex Lewis. Alex is a quadruple amputee and one of the most hopeful and inspiring guests we've had on the show. When his episode aired, we had a huge reaction from the audience. People wrote to us talking about how hopeful and uplifted they felt, considering the heaviness of all that is happening in the world right now. We thought this is an opportunity to lay down that weight for an hour and revisit Alex's story and message. Next week, All the Wiser will be back with a brand new episode. And now, the brilliant and brave Alex Lewis. So I, I think all in all, I guess in the last eight years since I fell ill, I think I've had 130 hours of surgery and I've probably spent two years of that eight years in hospital. Alex Lewis was just a regular guy running a pub with his wife, Lucy, in the English countryside and caring for his two-year-old son, Sam, when he caught what he thought was a bad case of the flu, which he ignored because living in the UK in November means living with coughs, colds, and runny noses. Except that Alex's never got better. And 10 days later, he was rushed to the hospital where doctors gave him a 3% chance of survival. And they couldn't really give us answers. It was just a case of, well, if we don't amputate, he will die. There is no other course of action. Drugs will not stop it now. The only way to stop that strep is to amputate. First, they took his left arm, then both his legs, and then after a time, his right arm. Alex would also have to undergo facial reconstruction surgery as the infection ravaged his face and mouth. So much unfathomable loss. But over time, one thing became crystal clear to Alex, that the fight for his life was a blessing in disguise. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser. Welcome to the All the Wiser podcast, where we share jaw-dropping stories of extreme adversity and the inspiring wisdom that comes on the other side of pain. We also donate $2,000 an episode to charities in celebration of our incredible guest. I have to be honest with you, I loved this conversation with Alex. He was so articulate and funny and wise, and frankly, I was blown away by his story and all of the people that he brought to life and sharing it. In this episode, Alex shares how being a quadruple amputee has brought out the best version of himself, one that he likes much better than the old version of Alex. 
We'll discuss the latest and in innovative technology that is improving lives for amputees. Plus, the one thing Alex says not to forget, no matter how bad you feel your life is at any given time. And if you aren't already, be sure to follow us on Instagram at All the Wiser Podcast to see photos and uplifting quotes from Alex and all of our guests. And while you are there, send us a DM and tell us what you think about the show. We'd love to hear from you. And we are always looking for feedback and ways that we can help you get the most out of our stories. And now I bring you the extraordinary Alex Lewis. Hello, Alex, and welcome to All the Wiser. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. So, Alex, I always love to have our guests introduce themselves. How would you introduce yourselves to our listeners? I'm Alex Lewis. I'm a 42-year-old severe quadruple amputee, just living an amazing life in the south of England with my partner Lucy, my wonderful little boy Sam, and my psychotic Jack Russell, and my feral cat. <laughs> That may be the best introduction ever on All the Wiser. <laughs> Succinct and to the point. I love it. So, Alex, I want to start at the beginning. Can you tell me about the backdrop of your childhood? So, the backdrop of my childhood, I had a great, an amazing childhood, actually. I grew up in the Hampshire countryside. I went to an amazing school, or three amazing schools in, in the Hampshire area. Uh, privately educated, there was a, a scheme with the UK military that had reduced fees for children of um, service personnel. So we were very fortunate to um, get a spot at the most idyllic uh, English prep school. Didn't study at college. Lost my way a bit as I as I went into kind of the 16, 17, 18, 19 bracket. And then before I know it, I was a self-employed uh, businessman. Um, from the age of 21 and then it kind of moved on and I had different jobs and meandered my way through really to where we are now I think. When you say you lost your way a bit explain what does that mean to lose your way and how did that unfold in your life? I think for me it meant that I came from a very uh, structured system the private system and then college was a public system and I just I had freedom for the first time in my young life so all of a sudden, there were beautiful women, there were pubs, there were reasons not to study, which I'd never really come across before. So I just didn't concentrate and I just didn't knuckle down. You know, I, I managed to pass my exams just, only just, which was a, a waste of the education that I had up to that point, really, which I regret looking back on it now, how I was and how I, how I treated my, my situation. But then, you know, all these things happen for a reason. I wouldn't be doing the things I'm doing now if it hadn't been for the way that I had behaved back then. Thank you for painting the, you know, the early picture of this this time in your life and sort of the wandering and discovering that comes after. But 2013 was a year where your life would be dramatically altered and changed. Yeah. Where were you in your life in 2013? So Alex Lewis, 2013, 
where are you? Who are you? Sort of what is your day to day? And, you know, how, how are you doing as a human being? So 2013, I was, uh, at that point, I'd met Lucy, my other half. Our little boy, Sam, was about two and a half, two and three quarters. I had a beautiful golden Labrador at that point called Holly. And we were running a, a village pub in the countryside in the south of England. I was a stay-at-home dad, which is by far the best job that I will ever have. It was the best two and a half years, two and three quarter years I ever had in my, or to have with my son. So I'm really pleased that I, I had that chance. But in reality, I was squandering that chance, really, because I was a, a very heavy drinker. I would think nothing of drinking, I don't know, 12, 16 pints a day, two or three bottles of wine. I should have been running the pub. Lucy, mother half, is a just a really hard-working entrepreneur. So she's, she's an amazing lady. And luckily with her get up and go, she had moved on to and taken another restaurant not too far from our, our pub in the countryside. So she was setting that up and running that. So all of a sudden I wasn't seeing her at all really through the day and through the night. It was a, she just worked 24 seven to get this business off the ground. And I was just sort of, I felt a bit stuck in the countryside, not really knowing what my, my next, what I was going to do next really. So yeah, I felt a little bit, I felt all at sea. That's kind of how it felt. And the way to, the way to counteract that feeling was to drink a lot, to socialize with the locals to always be at the bar, which was having a detrimental effect on my relationship with Lucy. I'm sure it had a detrimental effect on the quality of father I was the same at that point. I mean, you spoke to it a little bit, but do you think that now looking back, can you sort of pinpoint what you were numbing or what you were escaping in all that time in the bar and the beer? <laughs> yeah, yeah, both combined. Yeah. <laughs> I just think I was, I, I don't know what I was, if I was trying to escape something. I knew that Sam was going to start preschool pretty soon. And I think my fear was that when he goes to start that, then I've really got no excuse. I can't just sit at the bar. I can't just socialize with locals. You know, I can't watch the business, not make any money. I would need to put effort into, to, to drive it forward. I would need to go out to work to earn money. But I just couldn't see how I was going to do that. So I was at a juncture, I think, in my life. You know, I was 33. I was very lucky to fall in love with a great lady who fell in love with me. Very lucky to have my son. I've chosen the pets, maybe not the cat, but the dogs over my time. But um, otherwise, I've never really known, you know, what is it that I should be doing? You know, is there something out there for me that is, is going to grab me and, and make me think, this is it now? And at that point, I just didn't know what that was. And I, and I just felt that, I don't know, just sort of sat in the bar drinking made me forget about that situation. And how much were you drinking at this time? I was probably going through, so say a, a bottle of Budweiser. I was probably drinking about 50 of them a day. Wow, so a lot, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was huge amounts. It was just, it was constant from the doors opened at 12 o'clock and they shut 12 hours later. So I, I drank for that period seven days a week without fail. Not for I mean it was it was probably a two two and a half year period in that predicament, living above the business basically. You know, we lived in that in that pub in the countryside. So going to work was literally walking downstairs and you were there. 
you know, finishing at night, walking upstairs, going straight to bed. All right. So it's 2013. You're 33. As you said, you are with Lucy. So you have a partner that you love, a son you adore, but clearly are depressed, not taking care of yourself. Yeah. And drinking heavily in, in the bar that you live above. But things would change dramatically in your life and they would change very quickly that year. So can you tell me about the early signs and series of events that, you know, at the time you thought was what you called a man flu? <laughs> yeah, so it was about mid-November, no, sorry, the start of November 2013. And November in the UK means coughs and colds and kids with runny noses and all sorts of illnesses, you know, coming into the bar, to the restaurant. Um, customers would come in, you know, coughing away and blowing their noses. So for me to catch uh, man flu, as I thought it was at the time, was not a surprise, which is why we kind of ignored it. Um, well, I didn't ignore it. I moaned about it constantly. But Lucy was, was of the opinion that I just needed to man up and get over it. I think was her, her words at the beginning of it. But over the course of a, like a two-week period, I think, it went from slight fever down to a full-blown flu. And I'd never had flu, but I remember feeling really achy, hot and cold sweats all the time. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't go through the day without having to nap at various points. I stopped drinking almost completely. I couldn't face alcohol. I couldn't eat. And I just felt terrible. Absolutely terrible. And then I went to bed. And so after a couple of weeks, I went to bed one night um, and Lucy came in late. And I remember waking at about half two, three in the morning and I went to the loo and I saw blood in my urine. And I remember looking down thinking, that really isn't very good. I remember going back to bed and then Lucy saying, you okay? And I said, no, I think there was blood in my urine. And she said, go back to sleep in the morning. We'll call the doctors first thing. And I went back to sleep, and in the morning it was a it was a Sunday, and Lucy had to go and open our other restaurant. So when I woke up, Lucy had gone to open the other restaurant. Luckily that night, my son stayed with my my mum and my stepdad, so there was only me in the building with the dog. And I remember waking up, and the room was spinning. My skin was turning purple. I couldn't operate my my limbs. I couldn't use my fingers, my hands. I couldn't put clothes on. I couldn't, I just, I couldn't do anything. And I remember just kind of getting myself up to a seated position in the bed and just thinking, what is going on? And then there was a knock on the door downstairs. So I, I staggered downstairs and fell like the, the, the second half of the stairwell. And I got to the back door and I opened the, I just pulled the lever down and the door came open. And there was Lucy and my stepdad looking at me. And I, I don't remember too much about this, but I remember the look of horror on Lucy's face and horror on my stepdad's face. And then the next thing I know, they've got me sat in the restaurant. The next thing, paramedics come through the door. And I, I just didn't, I didn't know what was going on. I had no clue. But the paramedics said to Lucy, look, he's really unwell. We need to get him to hospital in the next 20 minutes. We need to go now. And it was immediate, and I was put in the back of the ambulance, rushed to Winchester, which was 20 minutes away, into ICU. And that's where I stayed for a week or so after that. 
And what would you later discover that they were witnessing physically that caused that reaction in Lucy and your stepdad? Well, later, when I so when I arrived in ICU, all these questions were asked, and, and I remember lots of people in blue scrubs just sort of screaming questions at me. And it was, you know, where have you been? What have you eaten? Who have you been with? But one of the questions I remember being asked was, have you been near any watercourses? And I think Lucy answered no. And I remember tugging on her, her sleeve or trying to and saying, you need to tell the doctors about, we had a river at the back of our restaurant in Stockbridge, our second site. And we had a storm drain at the back of our site in the countryside. So me and the dog were always around water. And as soon as they knew this, they thought I might have, I might have contracted Bowel's disease, which is through rat's urine. And I was about to be treated for that when a consultant, a South African chap, came in and he said, have we, have we found out what this gentleman is suffering from? And one of the doctors said, yes, we think he's got Bowel's disease. And he sort of looked at, he looked me over, I think, and almost immediately said, scrap that. This guy's got strep A. I've seen it once before in Cape Town. We need to treat this man right now for strep. Now, in the UK, strep just means sore throat. We had no idea what strep A was. Uh, the next thing I know, I'm placed on life support. And that's where I stayed for, well, nearly four days. To the point that I'm, uh, at one point I had a 3% chance of survival. The doctors had basically said to Lucy and my mum that he wasn't. I'm not going to survive. And they were told to go away and prepare to say their final goodbyes on the fourth morning. So, you know, as you said, you're given a 3% chance to live. Strep, which can present in some people, right, is a simple cold, is ravaging your body. Can you explain what happened now that you have clarity and understanding around it? What is happening in your body? So I guess the kind of the layman's term is basically my body was being attacked from the extremities in. So the strep was basically destroying all my nerve, tissue, muscle. So all my fingers had turned black. My feet were black. My ears were black. My nose was black. My lips were black. And what strep does is it, as it creates this path of destruction, all it's trying to do is get to your heart to kill you. And we were racing against time to try and stem it and treat it to stop it from getting to my heart is the, the layman answer, I think, really. So your organs are shutting down. You're put into a medically induced coma. Is that right? Yeah. At what point do you first become cognizant of the reality and severity of your situation and your health? So I, I didn't really understand the severity of my situation until I woke up on the fourth morning and I remember looking up thinking, where am I? And then lots of people that I recognized coming in to see me Lucy, my mom, my best mate had flown in from Courcheval at that point, and other friends and family. But they couldn't tell me the, the gravity of the situation because all we were being told is that the hospital that I was in would no longer continue with my care, that I needed to be transferred to another hospital, which was about 30 miles away. Now, we asked why, and we always got the same answer, we cannot continue with your care. We weren't told what was happening next. And when I arrived in Salisbury, the next hospital, it became apparent that I was to have my limbs amputated to try and keep the strep from my heart. So that is why you ended up amputating the limbs to cut off the strep from reaching the heart. Is that correct? Yeah. 
So when I got to Salisbury, I remember going into the ICU there. They transferred me onto this really comfortable bed. This bed was ultra comfy. And I remember lying there thinking, this is much better. I can happily spend some, some time here. And all of a sudden, the next time I recall is my room being empty. And uh, a door behind me opens. And in walks this beautiful lady in blue scrubs and who looked like she'd just come from the theatre. And I'm looking at her thinking, wow, you're really attractive. And she said, of course, my bed. And she said, oh, you know, hi, my name's Alex. Nice to meet you. And I said, oh, it's funny. My name's Alex too. Great to meet you. And she said, how are you? And I said, I, I th- I'm, very, I'm very well, thank you. Very well. How are you? And she said, I'm well, but you're not very well at all. And I said, uh, I said, oh, oh, really? And she went, yeah, yeah. And she she paused for a second or so and then said, what we're going to have to do is we will amputate your left arm above the elbow first because the strep is higher up and closer to your heart on the left. So that would be the first limb to go. We will try and save your lower leg and knee joint. You'll certainly lose your feet and ankles on both legs. On your right arm, it's not as aggressive. So we think we can carry out some pioneering surgery to try and save your arm so you can keep a hand or at least some partial movement of your thumb and forefinger. And you'll certainly need some surgery on your face. We'll provide you with a temporary skin flap to excise the dead skin. And then we think we'll be able to move parts of your left, sorry, right shoulder onto your face to give you new lips. And then she walked out the room as if it was a, a, a kind of average conversation on a, I don't know what day it was, Tuesday or Wednesday. I remember lying there just thinking, that didn't really happen, did it, that conversation? Well, first of all, I know you, that you would have nightmares, but what is this process of acceptance or lack of acceptance with that information? There was no process of acceptance. I, I freaked out. I, I wanted to escape. I wanted to get out of bed, get somebody to get me a wheelchair, to just get me home. I wanted to go home. I wanted to be with Lucy, be with Sam. And I felt this need to orchestrate this master plan to get out. In reality, I couldn't move. I was physically incapacitated. But I remember my best friend coming in at that point, and he could see I was visibly losing the plot, really stressed out. And he said, what's happened? And I regaled him with the partial bits of the conversation I just had with my plastic surgeon. And then he got angry, and then he told Lucy, and she got angry. And there was this big argument, really, of what's what's happening to me. And they couldn't really give us answers. It was just a case of, well, if we don't amputate, he will die. You know, we there is no other course of action. Drugs will not stop it now. The only way to stop that strep is to amputate. So the next sort of 12, 16 hours, I'm sedated. Uh, the following day, I wake up and a trauma psychologist comes into my room and she said, you know, you're going in for surgery today, we're going to amputate your left arm. I said, yeah. How do you feel about that? And I said, well, I'm gutted really because I'm left-handed. And she said, look, if you, don't, if you don't amputate your left arm, you'll die. You know, you won't be here tomorrow. So what do you want to do? Do you want to live? And I said, well, of course, yeah. And it was very clear cut from her. But the way she delivered it, it, it just it was like a, a, a bomb going up in my mind as if to say, got it. Okay, I totally get it now. And then I was really at peace with it. So I went into surgery, came out, and I was missing my left arm. But I didn't freak out about that from that point. And then my legs were to follow. Unfortunately, we couldn't save the the knee joints. Now, that was a, a shock. We didn't know that at the time going into surgery. So when I came out of surgery, I remember waking from the procedure, which was 
It was long. It was 14, 15 hours of surgery. And when I woke up, I remember two nurses who I was getting on with really well up until that point were dressing my legs or what was left of my legs. And the visualization of not seeing your legs there and what remains was just horrific. So I had a terrible moment with that. And then the right arm they tried to save and they did successfully for a time. Unfortunately, I was to lose that seven months down the line in a a very freak accident at home, which resulted in the amputation of my right arm below the elbow. And, you know, they, they did rebuild that arm with my left shoulder and they did rebuild my face with my right shoulder. You know, the, the plan that my surgeon relayed to me on that very first meeting was carried out almost to the letter, really. So you wake up from that surgery thinking that you were going to have more of your legs than you actually did. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 So that realization really... Bring us into your internal world, waking up and witnessing your legs after the surgery for the first time. What's happening? I mean, because I was so incapacitated, I I could never see, I couldn't sit up in bed. Physically, I couldn't move. So every time we had a surgery, I wouldn't be able to even lift my arm up, what was left of it, or even lift legs up. But when I woke up after that surgery to see these two nurses, it was the ward sister and this amazing nurse in Portugal who were dressing the legs, and it had to be done incredibly quickly. But what had happened is that the strep was so far advanced up my leg that it took all my skin up to my groin. So my legs, to again, to put it rather crudely, they looked like sausage meat without skin. And it just I'd never seen anything like it in my life. And it was, I think it was just shock when I saw it. But anyone in sound mind would have been reviled by what they saw because it was disgusting. It was it was awful. And I don't really think I was supposed to wake up at that point. But as soon as I did and I twigged that they were my legs or what was left of my legs and all that was my flesh that was being bandaged up, I just screamed in agony. Now I don't I don't remember whether it hurt or not. I just think that just seeing it was enough to trigger this must be really painful. You know, yeah. you should be feeling this. And then your face Explain what what happens to your face, your mouth, your lips. So in the early days, they, the temporary skin flap was very, very small. I'm not even sure where they took it from, to be honest, but they, they, they put it on my, they excised all the dead skin and they put a temporary flap over my mouth. Now that skin contracted to a point that it was the size of a, my mouth was the size of a 5p coin, a quarter, I guess. It was very, very small. And it was painful, and I, I had no way of really eating. I don't think I had solid food until I was into about March the following year. But it was always deemed that this was just the beginning of a long, long process of multiple operations to get me back to looking like Alex. So my surgeon said, look, we will rebuild your mouth. We can do this. It's a world first. It's never been seen or carried out before. We're going to do it here. You've got the right skin the area is intact. We haven't taken any skin grafts from that area. We can use this to rebuild your face and get you looking like you used to look. And now Lucy and I, all through all through this facial process, would giggle and you know, I'd say, Lucy, what sort of lips do you want me to have? <laughs> she would say, well, if you can look a little bit like George Clooney and Brad Pitt, together that'd be fantastic. So we would tell my surgeon, I want to I want to be the product of a, a Brad Pitt and George Clooney love child. That's the look <laughs> I'm going for. If you can make that work, that'd be great. 
and she would laugh and sort of play along with it. And when it came to the surgery, it was a it was a three day event. There was the old skin to take out; the temporary flap was cut out from my face, and then some sponge was stitched in to soak up any fluid. And then we had to leave that in for a period of time, and then it was the the big surgery. And I was thinking, I was really excited by it because I'd always been told that I would end up looking like me, the original me. So we had the surgery and I remember waking up, I think it was a 21-hour surgery. It was a huge, huge amount of time under anaesthetic. And I woke up and I remember looking around and the surroundings were, I was back in intensive care. Now immediately, I thought something had gone wrong. Now we had one shot and one bit of skin to make this work. So I remember looking down and seeing my nose and then seeing this huge, bulbous bit of white skin protruding from my where my lips should be. And there was a, a conical piece of skin, like a witch's hat of skin, coming out of my chin. And luckily, my surgeon was by my side when I came round. And she said, look, you know, you've been freaking out. Please let me explain. And then she talked me through just what the next stage of the process was. And I think Yeah, I think Lucy and I, we were just very naive in thinking that I was going to go into surgery and come out looking like Brad Pitt. Yeah. (laughs) I think that was, maybe we were just masking all sorts of things at the time. But when I woke up to see that that huge amount of skin, the visualisation again was, oh my goodness me, this has gone wrong. Yeah, it was a a not good look, to say the least. How long were you in the hospital and how many surgeries did you go through? Uh, so I I think all in all, I guess in the last eight years since I fell ill, I think I've had 130 hours of surgery and I've probably spent two years of that eight years in hospital. And what were the layers of loss? And I guess sort of, and I realize it's not linear and I'm sure you move backwards and forwards and all over the place, but sort of the layers of loss and the chapters of grief, if you will. When I was in and out of the surgery or the theatre for the first six or seven weeks, you had no time really to think because you were always in and out, in and out, sleeping off your anaesthetic. All of a sudden, you're back in the following day and then two days after that. So you had no time to, to lie and think about just what, the, what was unfolding. And it was when I was moved on to the ward when a, the majority of my surgeries had, had finished early on. And that's when you had time because you were healing you had time to think. And that's when you were faced with, I'm never going to hold a pen again. I'm never going to be able to stroke the ear of my dog, ruffle my son's hair, feel that that connection, never be able to cut Lucy's face, to kiss her like I used to kiss her. All these things start to creep in and trying to stay buoyant when the nights are long, you know, you're, you're tucked up in bed from eight o'clock in the evening to six o'clock the following morning you know i i, I can recall vividly I, I spent it must have been hundreds of hours looking at the ceiling thinking i just don't know how this is going to work now at no point did i ever think that i didn't want to be here at no point did i think i should die i always knew i always knew i had things to live for i knew that i had lucy i knew i had sam but what i wanted more than anything else was to be with them everything in that hospital unit even though at that time it was subconscious, I didn't really know it for sure. And it was way down the line when it became apparent as to why I was fighting. I just wanted to be with them. And I think that was the reason I got through 
well, that's the reason I'm here now. It was those guys. It was Lucy and Sam. Your love for Lucy and Sam. Yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. And, you know, you've said that you have a bizarre fondness for this time, that you were able to play a leading role in a drama involving hundreds of people, you know, who are investing their time and emotions and their talents and their gifts and giving you a chance at leading this this new life, which would ultimately become a really exciting life, a meaningful life, and one we're going to talk about more. But what do you mean by that? That If you can explain that fondness and that role you played. So I think right at the beginning, there was one moment in particular that, which stood out amongst many, many incredible moments that we had in Winchester and in Salisbury. But when I was in Salisbury, I remember it would... So I got there, I think, the, the third week of November. And I hadn't seen Sam until it came around to Christmas. And the nurses and my surgeon and Lucy said, look, let's bring him in. It'd be great for him to see you. He wants to see you. And, and I, I was desperate to see him, just absolutely desperate. I missed him terribly. So they said, look, Christmas Day, the one of the surgeons gets dressed up as Father Christmas and it's a really big deal and all, lots of family come in. We make a really big song and dance about it. And I, and I thought, this is going to be amazing. So Christmas Day comes around and I woke up, like everyone does Christmas Day morning, excited. Um, but there was no tree, no presents. It was just going to be my little boy. So I waited until about half 10, 11 o'clock in the morning. And, I, and where my bed was situated in the ward, I could see the double doors at the end and see who was just about to come through the double doors. So my eyes were transfixed on these doors all morning. And then all of a sudden, Lucy's face comes into view. And as soon as I see Lucy's face, I had nerves in my tummy. I, I had butterflies. It was just the most incredible feeling. And Lucy pushed the door open. And the nurses were trying to cajole Sam to come into the into the unit. So Lucy walked in ahead. And then, then my little lad, bless him, came running in after her. And he, he grabbed um, her leg and was walking behind her. And then he came out from behind her legs and he, and he was looking around for me. And I kind of, I felt like I was trying to sit up, but I couldn't do it. And I, I just sort of caught his eye and he stopped for a minute. He walked forward a little bit more and he looked at me and then he hid behind Lucy's legs. And I could see it in his eyes that he was, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't see, he didn't, didn't understand what he was looking at. My heart just sank like a stone because I wasn't thinking with any great clarity. It was just excitement. I was desperate to see him. I wanted him to run in and jump on me and give me a hug and a kiss and tell me how much he missed me. And I didn't get any of that. I, what I had was a, a very scared, nearly three-year-old, desperate to get away. He didn't want to be in there. He didn't, he didn't understand what happened to Daddy. Lucy tried her best, but it was futile, unfortunately. And, and they left that night or that afternoon. Then they walked out of the unit. I just plummeted. I was so sad, unbelievably sad. And one of the nurses had, had always, her and I had this great relationship. We would always chat long through the afternoons and, and she kept me really buoyant. And she tried to and she tried to chat to me, but I just wasn't having it. That afternoon, I was just down. I didn't want to talk. I didn't want to talk about it. I just wanted to curl up and pretend it never happened. Now, this nurse then went to the head of ward and said, look, Alex is really bad. We've, he's never, ever plummeted like this. And we've all seen what he's gone through. What can we do? So the, the, the ward nurse, she rang Lucy and she said, look, Lucy, I'm really sorry. I, I saw what happened with Sam and you. 
but Alex is really dipped and we cannot get him out of it. And this, this isn't him. This is most unlike him. Is there anything in his life that could cheer him up? And Lucy said, look, the only thing in his life that he loves more than me is his Labrador. And the nurse said, bring her in. Wait till it's all quietened down here. To, and then at this, about nine o'clock this evening, bring her in. And Lucy said, are you sure I can bring a Labrador into the ICU of the hospital? <laughs> she said, surely there must be rules against this sort of thing. And the nurse said, it's Christmas Day. She said, I can do what I want. And so that night, unbeknownst to me, was this amazing plan being hatched to smuggle my Labrador up onto the fourth floor and into the ICU. I had my dinner and again, I was, I was awake and I saw Lucy's face in that, in that porthole of glass. And I thought, well, what she's doing back? And then the double doors just sort of flung open and my Labrador came bounding in and was just this ray of sunshine, delight, unbridled happiness. She just wanted to be there. She wanted to meet the nurses. She wanted to meet every patient. She went around every bed. She was just an amazing tonic to what was a very, very sad day. But because the dog went around every bed, we were all talking about that Labrador that night. Now, none of us in that room had communicated to each other because we were all healing and getting over some terrible things. But when I was to move from the ICU onto the ward of the seven beds that I was one of in that ICU, I was the only one to survive. So my Labrador, in that short space of time, was just a little bit of life at the end of someone else's life. To think that she made so many people happy, buoyant, joyous, in that what felt like 15 minutes was just wonderful for all of us, I think. And I think from that moment on, I just saw everything that was going on around me in a different light. And it, it did, it changed the way I looked at my healthcare, it changed the way I understood my surgeon. I love that story so much, Alex. And this is the perfect sort of segue. So we are a podcast about personal transformation and you were changed as a man. You know, you said that you were changed as a father, a partner, and as a human being. I'm curious, each of those buckets, if you can, how did this experience change you as a father and as a partner? So I think it, when it became, well, there was one moment when it became, it became crystal clear why I was so buoyant about the future, why I had understanding. I had so many people doing things behind the scenes. And I knew that I had support before I fell ill, but I don't really think I understood just how much support I had. And through life, we meet people and these people stay in our lives and sometimes they drift out, but then they come back in again. But all the people that had drifted out of my life, when I needed them the most, they came back in. That was incredible. And they all had different roles to play in getting me through this, what on the face of it was a terrible time. But I think the happier I was in my situation, the more they became invested in me because I wasn't letting it get me down. You know, I wanted to get better. I wanted to heal. I did everything that the doctors and the nurses and my consultants told me to do. All the research that went on so we knew about wheelchairs, adaptions, prosthetics. We knew what was available. We could see I was lucky enough to be in a predominantly military unit, so I had lots of Afghanistan and Iraq veterans coming in and out of my room wearing amazing legs and arms and just seeing how well they were getting on on the face of it. So 
we were starting to see what what the future could possibly hold for us. And I guess towards the end of my time in, in Salisbury, it was just a very long two-hour conversation with my plastic surgeon who said that, you know, from where you were when you arrived to where you are now, you may not think it, but you are such a stronger person now than when you came in. The way that you've handled yourself, the way that everyone talks about you, the way that you've interacted with the nurses and the healthcare assistants. You know, these guys were my free therapy, really. So I wanted to know about their lives. I wanted to know about the doctor's lives. I wanted to know if this healthcare assistant's boyfriend was going to marry her. I wanted to know if their kids were doing well at school. I, I made every attempt, I think, to get the outside world into my, my little hospital room. And all of a sudden, it created this whole like bubble of, I don't know, just things to look forward to, simple things that I had lost complete sight of prior to falling ill. Even living in the countryside, I never stopped to listen to the birds singing. And one time when I was in ICU, they wheeled me downstairs and out into the car park so I could see the sun, albeit it was really cold, but I could hear the birds singing. And I'd never really, I didn't know that I was going to miss that, but I did. And coming out and coming through that experience, it just made me appreciate everything more. Not just Lucy and Sam, it just makes me appreciate who I am, who I have behind me, all the people that, the thousands and thousands of people that have supported me in the last eight years, all the projects that we've been involved in. This came from one extraordinary piece of what we thought was bad luck, but in the end, it was good luck. And you've, you've talked about Viktor Frankl's book, which has come up on this podcast several times, A Man's Search for Meaning. And, you know, when we started this interview, you said or what I heard you say was that at times you felt void of meaning, right? And purpose. Yes. So I'm curious about the impact that that book had on you. And do you start to feel as a result of everything that's happened that now you are shifting into getting clear on the meaning and purpose of your life? The Man's Search for Meaning came about through a, a random email from Chris Martin of Coldplay, who I don't know how he heard about my story, but he, he'd read it somewhere. And he managed to get hold of a, an email for me, and he, and he sent me a personal message. And I, I thought, one, that's really random, <laughs> that someone like that would, would email me. And he, he wrote the most eloquent email, just saying, look, I've read about your story. I think it's amazing what you're doing. I think if there's one book that you would really resonate with, it would be Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And he said there'll be something in that, there'll be a passage in that book which will resonate more than anything else. And I was reading through it, and it wasn't a quote from Frankel, but it was, once you work out the why, you will endure anyhow. And it just struck me like a lightning bolt that the why was Lucy and Sam. They were always my why, but I'd forgotten about it. For whatever reason, it completely slipped my mind prior to falling ill. But it took falling ill to remind me of why I fight to regain independence, to do everything that I do. But they were just the beginning of the why, and the why has obviously expanded over time to communities, groups, people with limb loss, limb difference, people in Sierra Leone, Uganda, Ethiopia. It's just the why has grown and grown and grown, and because of that, that large why has given me a much clearer and greater purpose, I think. Something that what I do now is a million miles away from what I did prior to falling ill. That it's, you know, I, 
I wake up every day thinking, what can we accomplish today? Every day is a good day. You know, I don't wake up thinking, oh, it's the same old, same old. That isn't it? That's not there anymore. And it, that, that chance email, the fact that it came from Chris Martin, man, I mean, that's like really cool. And I've never been cool. You know, I just, <laughs> it just gave me this most amazing feeling. And I've met him since and I, just, I, I thank him all the time. I've still got his email and I remind him that, you know, that if I hadn't read that book, if I hadn't read that, you know, the why and the how, you know, it just, it just gave me clarity, a clarity that I've never forgotten about. And you have said you like your life much better, right? Definitely. And this idea that the quadriplegic life is a bad life couldn't be further from the truth that you really have this wonderful life. So if you can sort of juxtapose, again, the transformation, you know, pre-Alex and post and how you're changed and why it's better, how would you illustrate that? I think the pre-Alex was just on a very slow treadmill, unable to get anywhere, and he couldn't understand why. And the the post-Alex is the understanding that only I can make the shift, and I and I understand that I have I have the impetus to do it. I think I, if you'd have said to me prior to falling ill, you know, do you reckon you'd ever be able to get through quadruple amputations, 130 hours of surgery, nearly losing your life, and dealing with it, and then beginning to enjoy it, and then building on it to where we are now? I just would have looked at you in a way as if to say, don't be ridiculous. I just want to end it. Why, why would I want to live like that? I've actually found that I just love the fight. I love that it's difficult. I enjoy that it pushes me and it tests me and it it just brings out a much more focused and better me. It's been the most, it's been a blessing, a very disguised blessing at the beginning, but it's just become really clear over time. You know, if it hadn't have been for quadruple amputation, you know, would I still be with Lucy now? Probably not. She wasn't going to stick around with someone like me that was just sort of languishing, doing nothing. And then if I wasn't going to be with Lucy, then how would my relationship be with my son? Well, probably not that great. You know, one thing I'm excited to talk to you, Alex, as we talk about meaning and purpose in preparing for this interview, I had a lot of fun learning about your passions and the meaningful work that you're creating in this world when it comes to technology and design. I learned about the microchip implant you had, and I found it to be fascinating, the change that technology can have in your life. And I would love for you to be able to explain to our listeners, you know, we we didn't spend a lot of time talking about loss, right? Loss of things prior to falling ill that you had and would eventually have to relearn or adapt. But, you know, you've explained something, you know, that most people would take for granted, which is, you know, finding your keys in your pocket and getting in the front door would be 25 seconds. And for you, that's 25 minutes of your day. So talk to me a little bit about this microchip and the role that technology plays in your life. And it's not something you're just benefiting from. It's something you are actively collaborating with on companies to make people's lives easier. Yeah. So the I guess my role in technology came around because of prosthetics. So way back when I was in intensive care and we had one really great friend of ours 
who just could not get her head around the physical difference of what was going on to me. She said, look, I can't go and sit with him and chat as if everything's all right and that he's going to be fine because it isn't. She was adamant that it isn't going to be fine. So Lucy said, well, don't go and see him. And she said, look, what? I won't go and see him, but what I will do is research into wheelchairs, adaptions, prosthetics, all these things that he is going to need at some stage. So she went away and just Googled constantly all this equipment and the tech that was out there. In my mind, I was going to look like a kind of hybrid Robocop slash Iron Man thing coming out of London. But what I was what I was met with was something that was, well, nothing like that. It was the polar opposite. I was looking at tech that hadn't been improved upon since the early 50s. And I was just desperately disappointed with what was available to us. Now, I had no health insurance. There was no big payout that was going to furnish Lucy and I with a better house and all this equipment. And the NHS here in the UK simply could not afford me. Um, so I ended up going to the US where I went to the Hanna Clinic over there and and very kindly in, in, in the way that your system works, I, I got a life quote through the Hanna Clinic and they gave me a quote from 35 to 60, I think it was, was three and a half to four million dollars in prosthetics. Now, we lost the business. We were struggling to make ends meet. That that may as well have been $400 million. We simply could not afford it. So when we flew back to the UK, I was really dejected. Lucy was very sad for me. And then I decided I took a, a chance on a, a public speaking engagement um, at school, a local school where I live. And I met, I met a guy there called Sam. And he was doing a PhD in biomechatronics at Imperial College London. It, I mean, it sounds really impressive. I didn't even understand what biomechatronics was. But he said, you know, what I can't get, I'm trying to make this amazing operating system for bionic hands, but I can't get people with missing arms to take part in the research. And I thought, oh, this is amazing. I said, well, I, I'll do it. I'd love to, I'd love to take part in that. If, I, if it means I might be working on something that improves my quality of life down the line and others down the line, then that's a win-win for all concerned. So that began my my work with university research. And then in, in the middle of all that, the microchip in my arm, weirdly, the company is co-owned by the man that saved my life, Jeff Watson. Wow. So he, he approached me and he said, look, I've got this idea with a friend of mine. We're thinking about putting implants in people's arms um, and hands to unlock, start their cars, unlock their front doors. But he said, for you, there could be a real application. You know, you could never have to use keys again. You could be able to store your medical data on a microchip. So if you're, at that point, I'd begun traveling quite extensively. So he said, you know, if you were in Greenland, I think about six months prior to the meeting, he said, if you were over there and you fell ill, but nobody could make out what it was, we could have an app on a phone that could scan your microchip. And then the physician on the island would be able to go through all your medical details to try and understand what's going wrong. So, you know, working on the microchip has made my life much easier. You know, the, knowing that my medical details are stored in my right arm means that I can go to Namibia in July. If I get bitten by a snake, you know, luckily Jeff will be there, but, you know, we could scan it and we could get my medical details up. And I just feel very, that makes me feel very safe, you know, knowing that I, I travel with all that knowledge embedded in me. I mean, you can imagine the amount of notes that I have from all my surgeries down the line. 
mean, it's it's just reams and reams of paper. But to think that that's now embedded on my arm is an amazing piece of technology, really. Yeah, that you can have your ID, your medical information. Yes, all of the ease that it can create. I also have been fascinated by your relationship with your physical body post-2013. Because as you said, you know, you're 33 years old and treating your body really poorly, sitting in a bar stool. And now a quadriplegic amputee, you are breaking records (laughs) around the world and hand cycling and kayaking and really just, you know, pushing your body in the most extreme and beautiful ways in all of these places around the world. But it seems like you're so much more connected to your physical body and reverent of it than you were before. Yeah, I mean, I think and the, the reason being is because I had a complete shutdown. Everything failed and I had a reboot. It's like a computer going offline and, and everything being wiped and starting again. And I think I knew that I was able to, not many people get that chance to have all their, all the problems of the past and all their, their bad life choices almost pale into insignificance when you survive something like strep and quadruple amputation. So I had a, I had this brand new body to start with. And it was just thinking about trying to stay fit. My surgeon always said to me, to become a competent quadruple amputee, you must have a certain level of fitness. You know, you, this isn't for the unfit, the condition you're in. And if you want to be able to keep going in the years as you, as you get older, you need to be a bit more focused on your body. And, I've always, and I have listened to her very closely. I mean, she's a, Alice Crick is my plastic surgeon and Jeff Watson who saved my life. I mean, th- these two guys are two angels that hover above me at all times. So I, I heed their advice and everything really. And then I said to her, I said, well, well what can I do? I, I, I haven't got any arms and I haven't got any legs. And she said, well, there's a guy here who comes to me quite a lot and he does hand cycling. But then when it came to operating a hand cycle, well, how many people with no arms go hand cycling? The whole thing doesn't make any sense when you when you actually say it. And I went to a prosthetist and he said, well, we've never had anyone in the UK do that with both arms amputated. And then it, then I felt like, well, this is really cool. This is, like, this is unique. And then I just felt empowered by that, that we were breaking new ground for. But then that also then put me onto the university research about improving prosthetics, improving devices for, for sport, for anyone with limb difference to take part in sport, really. And I guess that fire in being unique in all these things we undertake, whether it's kayaking, learning to ocean row, hand cycling, cycling on mountains in Ethiopia, uh, all, the, all the stuff that we do. I don't want to do things that other people have done. I feel that there's so many really cool, unexplored things to do. And that's where I see my, my life now. I want, to, I want to do things that people have never done a quadruple amputee running across the Atlantic. That's a big bucket list for me, or a, a big thing on my bucket list. I want to use activity to make a difference, I think. I think that's what it's probably more more about in the core, that I want to give people hope that somebody like me can do something as crazy as row across an ocean, or, you know, whatever it may be down the line. What do you turn to on the frustrating days, the hard days? You're human. There has to be lots of them. What are the things that you turn to? I mean, if I'm honest, it's probably biscuits. 
I always feel that a nice biscuit will get me through the darkest times. And I do still enjoy a glass of wine. I haven't had dark days since 2013, early 2014. There are times when I'm frustrated or I've been frustrated with being unable to do something. But I've always been blessed, thank goodness, with patience. And I think I don't talk about my patience enough, but I, I, I have tons of it. And that's really important with a condition like mine. I had to learn, you know, I, I use a split hook, body power prosthetic. It's a, about as rudimentary as they come. It looks cool, but, you know, functionality-wise, it's the best thing for me. But in my home, I do everything with that one arm. I have a normal wheelchair. I can propel around my house. I can get in and, in and around my area with one arm and a wheelchair. But when it comes to plugging things in, getting cables at the right point, trying to get them in tiny little phone phones and iPads and, and speakers and microphones and all that sort of thing, it just, the frustration was probably more acute in that situation because I was more office bound. And I've never been office bound since I fell ill. So I think I struggled with that slightly. But then it just made me look at it in another way to say, well, can we devise something a prosthetic may be that is more conducive to an office? Can we make a prosthetic that's more conducive to a kitchen? And now we're developing a soft shell prosthetic, which is more like a trainer than a, a very rigid uh, socket that you put your arm in that will have multiple attachments. So you'll have a knife attachment, fork attachment. We're looking at a tool prosthetic. So we are just, it's a source of ideas really about how we make something that will make my life better. And we come at it from a very unique angle because all four limbs are missing. So if it can make my life better, then the chances are it will make a triple amputee's life better. It will make a double arm amputee's life better and a single arm amputee's life better. So it, it just gives us, it's, it sows the seed, that frustration sows the seed. And I think that's why I enjoy the fight of my condition because it breeds creativity at the end of the day. It's, yeah, I love that, that it breeds it. Yeah, it has to breed creativity and innovation, right? To come up with solutions yeah. that don't exist yet. And one of the things you're passionate about as well is medical, you tell me correctly, the terminology tattooing, but I get very curious and interested learning about the detail and intricacy and giving you your lips back so you can kiss Lucy and... and <laughs> And the artistry that goes into that. And it appears the shoulder, your shoulder muscle, right, was was placed. And you said that you're, if I correct, when you would put on weight, they would <laughs> swell up big. But this, <laughs> the details down to the freckles, the curvature of the lips, the coloring, the exposing the freckles to the sun to create... So talk to me about a little bit about that and the difference that medical tattooing and reconstruction can create in people's lives, the impacts. Uh, I mean, the impact is massive. I mean, when I was in Salisbury and I was looking at this huge amount of white puffy skin, I couldn't see how that was ever going to look like it does now. And it wasn't until I, I had lots of I think there was about seven or eight surgeries all in all just on my face to reduce the size of the swelling from the, the shoulder muscle. And it was the last surgery that I had. And my surgeon said, look, once we have this one done and you've recovered, 
we can then look to get your face tattooed. And it was only two weeks afterwards when I went back to see her and she said, right, well, let's organise a meeting with the tattooist. And I said, so what tattooist? Is this a specialist who lives locally? And she said, no, it's a tattoo parlour in Salisbury on the high street. And I said, I said, hold on, let me get this straight. So I'm going to entrust somebody that would usually draw huge eagles and, you know, tribal tattoos on great big early guys. These guys are going to make me look like the old me. And she said, well, they've never done it before, but yeah, you would be the first to trial it down here in Salisbury. And when, when she said trial it, I was adamant I was not going to do that. In the UK, there's a lady called Katie Piper who had an acid, had acid thrown over in an attack many years ago, and she had some work done with a lady called Karen Betts. Now, Katie Piper and I weirdly grew up in the same town, not that we ever met, and I got in contact to her foundation, and she put me in contact with Karen. And I got chatting to Karen, and, and the more that I looked into her work, and it just looked unbelievable what she was doing, I thought, right, so this is the lady that we think can do the work. And I, I went back to my surgeon, and I said, right, I think I found somebody who looks like they do more facial tattooing than the guys in Salisbury might do. And she said, well, I'm not letting anyone just tattoo you. I need to go and meet this lady. And so I took my surgeon up to London, and I met Karen, and I needed about 20 hours, I would think. But then Karen said, look, I've read about your story. I've spoken to Miss Crick about you. I'll do it for nothing. I have a foundation and everything that you're going through and what you want to do and some of the things that I had done at that point. She said, I think it's amazing, so I'll, I'll do the work for nothing. And then began this, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of tattoos. I mean, it was so painful just underneath your nose and on your lips and on on skin that had had so many surgeries on it. But all of a sudden it went from bright white to some freckles, different colour, and then a build-up of colour. And it, it just, it was incredible. The transformation in about 14 months was unreal. And I was think about six months after that, I, I was I was going out to Africa. And I'd, I said to her, I said, look, do I need to overly protect the skin and she said no it's got to go the other way you've got to burn when you're out there you need to let that white skin go as red as it can and it's going to be painful and it's going to be itchy but you need to get that base color into your skin so we can then work on magic with the 3d tattooing and i remember i went out i kayaked around or down the orange river between namibia and south africa with no sunblock um which in any other me- medical scenario would be highly irresponsible. But for me, that's kind of what we do. And I came back and I had a few more sessions with her and this pointillism method of, of tattooing colour and my lip colour was done. And I think, I reckon it probably took about two years to get to the point where I remember being in a, a lift in London and I looked in the mirror I, I didn't see the old the, the Alex, the surgical Alex. I saw the old Alex. There was a glimpse of the old me visually and facially, and it just made me feel a million dollars. The impact it has on people because they know the story and they, and they see that it's, it's surgical, but you know now they have to come up really close to quite understand what's gone on, that from a distance I do start to look like the old me, which is just a feat of incredible skill 
and generosity, really, from these people. Artistry, generosity, skill. Yeah. yeah. Where do you think you would be in your life today without the strep and without everything you went through in 2013? I think I'd be probably still in the building industry, jobbing from one side to the next, maybe. I dread to think where my drinking may have got me in a health perspective. I wouldn't be with Lucy. She wouldn't have have stuck around. Life would be awful, I think. I think I was on that path and really close to screwing it all up. The strep just, for whatever reason, decided that I'm here for you. Let's get you out of that. Yeah, I dread to think where I'd be now if it hadn't been for strep. What do you hope people take away from your story? I guess any one of us, we've all been through bad situations, bad times. And I think with illness, we can all remember just how ill we were when we had something. Something that just makes you feel really, really bad. You didn't really know how it was going to affect you long term or, you know, that's that's as bad as my life's ever been. That kind of moment. Well, for me, that that was death, really. I was on the cusp of death. And I think I was more fearful in reality of losing my family than I was of dying. And I think if I hadn't have had strep, you know, and being unable to then start again with Lucy, start again with Sam, rebuild damaged relationships, have that chance, you know, I wouldn't be where I am now. But to let it get to that point was reckless, silly, not necessary. So many, so many things. It just didn't need to happen. And I think if anyone, any kind of takeaway from this is that just don't let it get that, that far down the line. There are avenues out of however bad you feel your life is at that time. There are roots and you build these teams around you. You're only as strong as the people that you have in your life. But I forgot that. So I just urge anyone that's listening to not forget who you've got around you because they'll be your why when you need it the most. They'll be the reason that you fight and you keep going. But there's no need to let it get to that point, really. I think quadruple amputation has been the best thing that's ever happened to me. And if you had the ability to magic up a pair of new legs and and it will give me back my legs and give me back my arms and my face, I wouldn't want it because the, what I've learned over the last eight years, who I've met, what I've achieved personally, professionally, physically, has been it's a whole life in itself, really. It has been the best eight years. Thank you, Alex. And, you know, I must say, you know, often these conversations obviously are really introspective. You do an incredible job of bringing other people to life and the role that they played in your healing and your thriving in the way that you are today, whether it's Lucy or the doctors or your dogs. So I really appreciate that and thank you for that. So not only sharing your your journey, but the many people who surrounded you. Yeah, I'm very fortunate to have just amazing people in my corner, really. Yeah, it's been just a life-altering in a great way. All right, we are going to end with something short, sweet, and fun called Lightning Round, where I am going to just fire off something quick and you share with me the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. Favorite curse word? Oof, fuck. Ooh, for... A hot minute, I was afraid you didn't say curse words. So th- I'm glad you said fuck. 
<laughs> Best piece of advice you've ever been given? Ooh, uh, that's, that's the opportunity one. Take every opportunity. Top thing on your bucket list? Definitely run across the Atlantic. Best way to spend a Sunday? Oof, long lunches on the riverbank of our restaurant in Stockbridge with some nice wine and some great company. Sounds lovely. Biggest pet peeve? Oh, I don't know. What's my biggest pet peeve? At the moment, it's my Jack Russell that refuses to go to the loo outside. That's really great at the moment. That's getting to me a lot. So currently, that's the problem. It's a very fair frustration. So we chatted before we started. Sam is 11 now, and you were gushing about his laid-back, easy 11-year-old boy ways. (laughs) My hope for Sam is... My hope for Sam is that he understands just how important he was in his mother and father's journey at the beginning when his father fell ill. I hope he understands just how important. Well, you know, he's the reason. I hope he understands that. And I hope that he learns that. Alex, thank you for your time, your generosity of spirit, of of sharing all of the aspects of, of you and your story today. We're so grateful and really excited to share this with our listeners. Well, no, thank you so much for inviting me on. Thank you for listening to today's conversation with Alex. Our producer, Erica, asked me to share one thing on my bucket list, and it is new and has been inspired by one of our upcoming guests. But I have decided that before I die, I will jump out of a plane. So stay tuned and hold me accountable. Jumping out of a plane is on the bucket list. Today's charity, and there's always one, and I love it when they are incredibly fitting and aligned. So Alex chose to give his $2,000 donation to Project Limitless. This is being run in the UK through the Douglas Bader Foundation. And the video, it's not hard to make me cry, but I cried very quickly seeing these kids. Their goal is for every day of the year for one child with an upper limb difference to receive a new prosthetic. So they have this big waiting list of kids that are in line to get this easy-to-wear, soft-to-touch prosthetic that they can learn to use and to adapt. And each child not only gets the new prosthetic, but they get the support to learn how to use it and to guide them. And anyways, it's really incredible. And it's all for kids getting prosthetics that obviously just bring credible ability and joy into their lives. So today we are proudly supporting Project Limitless. And thank you, Alex, for making that introduction. As we said in the open, I hope you will continue the journey, see all the awesome pictures of our guests and their families. And you know, we try and bring their words to life and beautiful quotes and fonts and all that jazz on Instagram at All The Wiser Podcast. So thank you, Alex. Thank you to everyone listening. And thank you to Project Limitless. Be well, everyone, and take care of yourselves and one another. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. And our associate producer is Tara Daigle.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. 